Hey there, I'm Emlyn Miles Mattingly, your host for the Minority Money Podcast. I'm glad you're here. You know why? Because this is the place you can come to get your weekly finance, family, and fitness motivation, not only to experience success in those areas for yourself, but also to help others in our community achieve greatness too. Super happy that you're on the show with me. So let's jump right in. Welcome to the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly, founder and president of Gen Next Wealth, a fee-only financial planning and investment firm. And I am glad to have you guys back as we continue to dive into the month of April talking about family. And this episode, to me, we've been trying to work on this episode for a little while, and I am so happy and excited that Mona was actually able to finally come and join me. Our schedules conflicted a little bit, but you guys are in for a treat. I know, I know. I said that last episode, and I said that the episode before. And every time I've said it, you guys have been in for a treat. So today we're going to talk about how to align your investments with your values. And we are joined by Mona Nakvi. And she is going to share some of her expertise. And you guys be ready for this. Mona, welcome to the show. Thank you, Emma. It's a pleasure to be here. What I like to do is, well, one, we met almost a year ago. It's almost been a year since we met. We met at the in Dana Point That's at right. the Inside ETF conference. Yes. Has it really been that long since we've been trying to schedule this podcast? Wow. <laughs> well, no, we did because I didn't even have the podcast back then. I started the podcast in July. So I started the next month. I was like, she needs to be a guest on. I was very impressed. I heard you speak at the conference and then I you know, spoke to you afterwards. And I just knew that the stuff that you were talking about, people needed to hear. So I'm just glad we were able to make this happen. Perfect. Well, thank you for giving me the platform. If you wouldn't mind giving the listeners a little bit of your background. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. So the first thing you're probably wondering is why is someone with an English accent speaking to me right now? <laughs> For an American audience, well, I am British. I am from London. I've actually been in New York and in the US for the past sort of seven years. But in terms of my career, I'm an economist by training. I studied at the London School of Economics. And from there, I went to work at the Central Bank of the UK. So like you guys have the Federal Reserve, we have a bank called the Bank of England that is the sort of central bank governing all of monetary and financial policy for the UK. And I was doing research on some really cool things, you know, looking at stuff like alternative currencies and local currencies. You know, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard things like Bitcoin in the past. And I don't know if this is a topic you've ever covered, but back then it was the kind of thing that the central bank was worried potentially might have an impact on you know their ability to control the currency, which is important for various reasons in terms of maintaining a stable economy. And so I was doing research on that and I came across this topic of eco-currencies, which is this idea of linking the money supply, which in the past has been linked to things like the supply of gold, but nowadays it's what's called fiat currency which is something that is simply where the government decrees its worth. So we all kind of universally accept money and dollars as the currency of the US because the government supports it. And so we all have kind of faith in it. So actually, that's another interesting topic. I could go down a whole whole discussion on kind of the credibility of the currency and how how that works. But anyway, started looking at this thing called eco-currencies. And this got me interested. It was this idea where you would back the value of the supply chain of money with our production of energy, really turning something very tangible that we can all relate to into something we use every day in our everyday lives, which is the money and the currency. 
And so that kind of piqued my interest in environmental topics and how that links to finance more generally. And so from there, I then, for personal reasons, decided to move to the U.S., where I then worked with the Obama administration on climate and energy policy, because I was very interested in seeing where this environmental stuff could go. And having been a finance person myself, was kind of curious to see how the regulatory space and how policymakers were looking at this. And from there, I got a good grounding in the U.S. system. And I went on to work for a European think tank and set up their New York offices called the Two Degrees Investing Initiative. And maybe some of your listeners are aware, they may have heard of this phrase, two degrees. What does that mean? The Paris Agreement, which, as you may know, is a law enacted by countries all over the world. It was spearheaded by the UN to limit global warming to what was then a goal of limiting it to no more than two degrees Celsius. I'm actually not sure what that is in Fahrenheit because I'm British. Anyway, two degrees Celsius since pre-industrial levels. So kind of like from the turn of the century, making sure we don't allow global warming to go past this amount. And so the Two Degrees Investing Initiative that I worked for was a think tank that produced research on looking at topics like how can we make sure the economy and finance in general is aligned with our climate change goals of limiting global warming to two degrees. And from there, I went to join where I am now at SCP, working in a different division uh, to begin with, also kind of looking at climate risks the risks from climate change, what impact things like storms, floods, sea level rise have on people and their everyday lives, but also critically on the financial markets. And from there, went into my current role, which is working on ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance. So looking at all these different kind of issues and considerations at the index provider. So creating benchmark indices to help tell a story about the state of the financial markets with this environmental and social ends. That's so awesome. I've followed you for a little while now, almost a year. <laughs> so I've followed you on your Twitter and then see stuff that you're doing on IG. You are quite the renowned speaker. I've seen you speaking in different places all over the world. I've seen you speaking in Mexico. I've seen you speaking in several different countries in Europe. I think I've even seen you speaking in Africa, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So I did see you speaking in Africa. So it's incredible. So as we get into this, aligning your investments with your values, can we talk about like, okay, so people talk about the market, obviously everything going on with COVID-19, the economy, not only in the States, but across the globe, right? Everyone is dealing with this. And I hear people say market all the time. I hear my clients say market and I hear other people say market. And I'm not really sure if, you know, if they're talking about the Dow Jones or they're talking about the S&P 500. But for the sake of this conversation, I wanted to just can you explain to the listeners, you know, at a high level, what is the S&P 500? Because that's part of the market that everybody is worried about right now. So what is the S&P 500? To take one step back, the market, I would say, is just, it's all of us. We are the market, right? And we are the market as consumers. We are the market as business owners and employees that together collectively sum up to the global economy. The S&P 500 is a benchmark index. And a benchmark index is essentially, the technical definition of this is, is it's a basket of securities. Securities meaning financial products that are tied to companies, be they stocks and bonds and those types of things that represents 
a section of the market. So in the case of the S&P 500, this is considered to be the single best gauge of the state of the U.S. economy because it reflects more or less some of the biggest, the 500 or so biggest companies in the U.S. that are publicly listed on stock exchanges. So, you know, the types of companies we all have heard of, like be it Google and Alphabet or Facebook and Tesla, all these various different companies, household names that you hear of every day, they comprise the market in the US. And so when people are talking about whether the market did well today or did poorly, they're really talking about the collective performance of all of these big household names across all the different industries that make up the US market. And it's a good kind of proxy or kind of it represents a lot of things because market sentiment and how all of us as everyday people that make up the market feel, financially speaking, is somehow reflected in the performance of these companies and in their stock market performance because we, the market, are the ones ultimately determining the price of those outstanding securities, day stocks, shares, bonds, etc., based on supply and demand economics. Love it. That was a very, like you've talked about this before, huh? There are others that are far superior. I can't <laughs> maybe for another episode. We obviously define it's a plastic product. I would be remiss if I couldn't explain it. The funny thing is, because I know you speak on an institutional level and I know what you talk about, but to be able to explain it in a way that where the listeners, I think, would be able to understand it and do it succinctly, like it was easy. I understood it and I have things explained to me very simply. So that was good. I really do appreciate that. And I think it really gives some context around why the market is so important and how we view it, not only as Americans, because you said you were in the UK. In the UK, would you follow the S&P 500? Is that something that had any interest to you or? Yeah, it's a great question. We, as an index provider at S&P, we do make headline benchmark indices like the S&P 500 for practically every country in the world. And each country has its own measure of its market performance. However, because of the size and influence of the US globally in terms of trade with other countries, how the US economy does is a good reflection on how the global economy is doing. And so for that reason, it is often cited as one of the measures for the state of the global economy in general, but also taken together with other various economic metrics, for example, unemployment and other things that give us a sense of how well the economy is doing, not just in the US, but globally. And thank you for that great explanation. The whole thing that we wanted to talk about today, or not the whole thing, but what we wanted to touch on is how to align your investments with your values. Because I think that obviously in this current climate, people are you know maybe a little hesitant to invest as they, well, some people are looking at this as a great opportunity. But when you have something that you value and you want to align that with the way that you pick your investments, I wanted to just jump in a little bit because you talked a little bit about ESG, but I wanted you to touch on what ESG is for our listeners and why that's important. Yeah, well, this is a big question. Let me take a step back and just think about how a lot of folks at least that I've come across, tend to think about investing. It can be a challenging thing for ordinary folks like you and me to do because institutions have so much research and people full-time working on this. That's their job, you know, to know the ins and outs of how every company is doing financially and to think about that. But for ordinary people, 
who just don't have the time to do that, they tend to look to other measures. And the S&P 500 is many of the world's most successful investors have said, like Warren Buffett and others, they've said, and I mean, I'm not giving advice. This isn't my role. I'm, I'm not able to do so. But just kind of anecdotally, what others have said is one of the best things or safest things to maybe do is to kind of put your money in one of these types of broad market benchmarks like the 500 or, or some of the others that are out there and just kind of watch that grow because that way you're kind of not taking a specific slice of risk. You know, you're not overly exposed to any given industry or type of company. Like you could put all your money in one company if you wanted, but then you're not diversified because if that company suffers a given risk, then you might lose some money. But if you hedge that risk by putting money in other types of companies that maybe have counter cyclical, meaning they react differently to the same macro trends as some of the others in the portfolio that you're investing in, then you can kind of on the balance make sure you have a resilient set of investments that is well suited to all kinds of exogenous external stocks, right? So the kind of theory behind passive investing, which is when you put your money in something, a tool or a product that reflects the broader market like how the S&P 500 does, the idea is that it's well diversified. You've got a good balance of exposure to the market on the whole. And therefore, when the economy does well, you do well as well, without having to take an informed and educated active bet on a specific type of industry or company outperforming the market. So that's kind of the basis of passive investing and why it's so accessible and it has been very successful in recent years, especially. That's passive investing. And like you were saying, just to kind of add in, the passive investing means you're not making active movements yourself. You're kind of trusting in the broad diversification that you have from picking this in particular fund. In this case, it happens to be an index. And we're saying that this index is going to mitigate some of the risks of being over-concentrated in one particular stock. Precisely. So there are a number of index providers out there in the world. S&P is one of the leading ones, but there are a couple of other major household names as well. We all create these indices, these index products, and then lots of different fund managers and investment houses will create funds and products that are tied to our benchmark indices. And to the extent that they hug them closely and represent like a very essentially reflect what is in the index, that's considered passive investing in that you're not making active decisions or their portfolio managers aren't making active decisions, which is in, which inherently involves risk because it essentially means you're deviating from the market. So passive investing is simply just tracking the broader market and having a broad and diversified exposure to the economy. What that means, however, is that most people who, who kind of put their money in these types of products might not know what they're funding. The broad market happens to include tobacco companies, fossil fuel companies, gambling stocks, alcohol manufacturers, adult entertainment producers. There are all types of industries that are a true reflection of the market. And so if you're just passively investing in these, you're not necessarily conscious or aware of the types of business activities that your money is funding. The risk then is that maybe from a value standpoint, a lot of people have pretty strong ethical kind of opinions on a lot of things. And they might be unknowingly financing the types of business activities that they themselves agree with. 
for many decades, there's been this type of investment considered, it's called socially responsible investing. And it's been around really since the 60s. It, it first came around when people were realizing that they were inadvertently funding South African companies during the era of apartheid, which many people didn't agree with. So it allowed them to divest from South African companies, meaning they took that money away from those companies, therefore inherently taking the sort of active decision to change their exposure to the broader market, limiting it somehow by removing South African company exposure. And therefore, they could stand behind their investments from a moral standpoint and say, I feel good about what I'm investing in because I do not support these unethical political practices. So that was kind of the burst of this. I want to jump in right there because I want to think about, I think you're talking about what was going on in South Africa. And I think this is the perfect time for us to bring this up. Because I think sometimes we think what's going on in South Africa doesn't affect me, right? Yes. And I think here in the States, two months ago, we were thinking what's going on in China doesn't affect me. And if there's anything that we need to be very, very crystal clear about is that this is a global community. And what happens in one country does affect what's going on in another country. And you funding something unknowingly that you do not value, whether it's alcohol, whether whatever it is, you know, fossil fuels, whatever is not aligned with your own social responsible activities that you engage in, you probably want to be more aware of where you're putting your money and what your money is going to. And I think this is the exact reason why. Exactly. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. We live in a globalized world. There's no doubt about it. Even if you're putting your money in companies that are US-based, like the S&P 500, those companies still have global supply chains. Let's take an example of a hotel brand. Okay, a hotel company, let's say an American hotel company. Um, you know, this might be one that you like because you stay there often and it's um, a household name you recognize and everything. But maybe the buildings that they purchased for the hotels had bricks used to make them, to build them, that were sourced from another country with cheaper labor, where actually maybe children or child labor or forced labor in some way or another was used to make those bricks. Now, you as the person, as the guesting in the hotel, are not directly responsible for that child labor. But indirectly, by staying at a hotel that was built using bricks, sourced from another country with less good labor laws, where maybe some of those vulnerable communities were used in that production process, you've unknowingly contributed to that business model. This doesn't just apply to investing, as this example demonstrates. This applies to every business. And it's overwhelming to kind of think about all of that and lots of groups trying to make, you know, thank goodness all the groups like the UN that, you know, take most of the burden of, of all these complex issues from their shoulders. But that's a good example of how if you invest in a company equally, it's one thing to stay at a hotel, but if you're investing in that type of company and you're putting more and more money, and that money is financing the expansion of that hotel empire that's creating even more demand for these bricks that are made by children somewhere, for example, then that is something that that financing is indirectly accountable for. That's an odd example. Some of the more typical ones are, you know, if you're financing a fossil fuel company, then you are directly kind of financing a high carbon energy source that we know has intergenerational impacts through climate change. So it's not just about 
other countries, but it's also about other generations and other species, like the impact that climate change is having on ecosystems and biodiversity globally is significant. And we might be indirectly kind of financing those bad habits by financing those types of companies. And the impact of climate change, even if the companies that are producing those greenhouse gas emissions might be domiciled in, in the US, the fact is, is that the warming of the planet affects everybody and climate change doesn't care where those emissions were sourced. There's going to be acid rain and rising sea levels and hurricanes, storms and floods in probably some of the most vulnerable developing countries that were not themselves responsible. So it goes both ways in terms of the interconnectedness of both the kind of supply chains and the impacts of people's investments around And so there's the launch of a socially responsible index fund, right? The ESG index fund. Now, we're not going to talk about the specifics, but talk about just in general. Talk about that launch and you're getting into why it's so important. But if you can give us an overview of what that is. Absolutely. So here's the thing. There are a lot of people that for many decades, since the 60s, like I said, that have taken an ethical stance on their investments where they have simply said, I don't believe this. I don't want to invest in this. This raises an interesting question, which is what is the impact of that on my returns? Which is the primary reason for investing, right? People invest to make money, and that money might finance the security of their family, of their children, of their livelihood. So they might care about these other countries and other issues and supply chain impacts, and they might want to do good, but they also want to do well. What happened over the past few decades is even though this type of investing has existed, it never became mainstream because the ordinary mainstream investor wants to make money at the end of the day. Kind of coming back to this idea of how the more broad market exposure you have through passive investing, the more diversified your portfolio is and the more resilient you are to all these different types of risks. So too, is it the case that if you start to take away tobacco, fossil fuels, other things, from your investments, you are less diversified and therefore it is possible you make less money. A lot of people were kind of like, okay, this is important, but I don't want to do this because ultimately that's the most important thing. So what's changed over the past few years is this new kind of field of investment called ESG. It's kind of the predecessor to ESG was this SRI. I was talking about socially responsible investment. But nowadays ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social and Governance, is actually quite different. What it is, is we now have more information from companies about their sustainability practices. So continuing that example of a hotel that's supplying its bricks from a wholesale supplier that's using child labor, that's the kind of thing that ESG information helps capture. So we now have transparency into the supply chain impacts of companies, and we know a lot more about what are their carbon emissions, how do they treat their employees, how are they doing with general kind of resource efficiency and their impact on the planet more generally. We have metrics on all of these things now. Or, or for example, like are their business practices indirectly violating human rights in some way or another? So now we have all this data and information that we've never had before. And so in the past, we had to simply say, we've got just exclude an entire industry to protect ourselves from these ethical violators. Now, we know between two energy companies, which is worse than by how much in terms of carbon emissions. Essentially, we have more shades of gray 
than we've ever had before. From an investor standpoint, what that means is it's not so black and white. We no longer have to simply exclude an entire industry and say, okay, now I should go about my investors. We can actually say, how is this company doing? Is it improving over time? Is it worse than its peers? How well aligned is this company with my values? And can I still invest in it while maintaining a broad and diversified exposure to the market so that I can still make sustainable and reliable returns? And so that's what ESG is really about. And so what we created last year, and this is what you heard me talk about when we met in Dana Point, is an ESG version of the S&P 500. So this is essentially a very similar index that reflects the US market, but it counts for the sustainability practices and performance of companies on things like gender diversity, carbon emissions, resource efficiency, all these various issues that we may care about and make sure that the performance on those metrics of the index is better, 25% better to be exact. What that means, for example, is the ESG version of the S&P 500 has a lot more companies in it that have at least 50% of senior management positions filled by women. Right, that's an issue that a lot of us care about. But at the same time, the index was designed in such a way that it still offers a very similar level of risk and, most importantly, return to the original S&P 500. So this choice that may have existed in the past kind of trade-off, where people may have in the past had to say, "Okay, I want to do good, but I, you know, have to give up returns in order to do it." is no longer the case. It is now possible to do good and do well with new tools like the S&P 500 ESG that allow people to invest in a way that they can stand behind, that supports their ethical values, while at the same time not detracting away from their returns and their financial security for them and their families. You're killing this right now, okay? I'm just telling you, you're doing a great job explaining all this stuff. So I'm sitting here thinking, and I know we said we're aligning your investments with your values. What does this have to do with family? I think this has everything to do with family. I'm a girl dad. I think about companies that my daughters may want to work for in the future. If they don't want to work for Gen Next Wealth, which that's option number one. (laughs) But if they wanted to work for a company and they weren't being responsible socially or they didn't have diversity in their workforce, especially in the upper management place, I want to know about that. And it's something that I want to support. If I'm thinking about global warming and companies with the fossil fuels and how that may affect that, I don't think that investors know that they had that opportunity to be able to pick funds like that and to align their investments with what they value. And I think that as you begin to peel back these layers of the onion, as you've done, it makes me think, what am I investing my money in? How have I helped some of these companies that don't align with things that I believe in or causes that I'm fighting for and line their pockets with money. Even though it may be a little bit, I'm still helping out, almost fighting against myself in what I'm trying to accomplish by supporting some of these other companies financially. Tell me about this, because I've always wondered this because I've seen your Instagram handle. Why do you call yourself the climate warrior? <laughs> oh gosh, I regrettably <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> you know, as I was talking about at the beginning, my personal career trajectory. ESG, environmental social governance, is much broader. It accounts for issues like gender diversity, ethnic minorities represented, 
human rights, civil liberties, all types of issues, as well as environmental concerns like climate change. But one of the biggest areas that has driven and spearheaded this whole industry has been climate, because it is one of those things that is really making an impact on the financial value of assets today already, and is predicted to have perhaps the biggest impact on financial performance of companies over the next sort of 10 to 50 years ahead. And so from an investor's perspective, this is the big ticket issue. This is what everybody is talking about. And so my career was really focused heavily on climate change related issues. And so I, you know, more recently expanded thinking and expanded my thinking across all these different environmental, social and governance issues. That's where the climate comes from. The warrior piece is I work for SP, of course, and what we're doing is market leading and we're trying to transform the industry. And my role within that is I feel as an educator to educate the market and everyone on the possibilities of values-based investing and that this doesn't imply trade-off with returns. In fact, many people argue, and there's lots of evidence that points toward these types of strategies outperforming the traditional ones. So actually, you can not only do good, but also do better in some cases. It's a bit of a battle with the old finance folk, the mainstream people that don't necessarily look like you or me that have dominated this space. I don't want to discredit other types of people. Actually, the industry is now turning in this direction. And even those people that were maybe once resilient to this are now seeing the importance and the opportunities in ESG investing. And actually, one out of every $4 of professionally managed assets in the world is now in these types of ESG strategies. So obviously, something has changed and everyone does care about this now. But still, there is resistance from certain segments of the market. There is some cognitive dissonance where people think, how can I possibly have my cake and eat it too? Or like this idea that like two, these two things don't make sense in my mind. How can I kind of square that circle? And so it is a bit of a battle. And I see myself as just one foot soldier in the fight against the old school way of thinking in finance and bringing us all into the 21st century with a more modern and values-driven approach to investing that really allows us to materially make a better world with where we put our money. Awesome. Like I said, you've been killing all these questions. I'm just going to move right on. So as you know, this is the Minority Money Podcast where we are changing the complexion of wealth. And so I want to lead into these questions that I have. And the first one for you, Mona, is what motivates you and inspires you to grow and learn? I mean, there's just so much to learn. (laughs) (laughs) One can never really stop. But really what motivates me is this mission. I am a mission-driven person. And I think many people are if they're given the opportunity. I count myself very lucky that I found a little niche of finance. I jokingly refer to it as the good side of finance. <laughs> my friends my friends are mostly artists and restaurateurs. And sadly, they're all struggling these days given the situation with that gig economy. So I feel for them. But they're much more interesting people. And so when I talk about what I do in finance, I always caveat and say, no, it's the good side of finance. Because I do feel that this industry represents a beacon of opportunity. And so it's very mission-driven. Having the ability to make an impact and a positive been on the world is what gets me up every day. It's not just limited to me. And everyone, once they realize that the money that they are investing is actually having this impact, suddenly you're in control and you can take the reins on where your money is going and help direct it towards the values that you care about. Just one thing on that. It's not just about investments that people have. 
directly, but people might not even realize, even if some of your listeners don't have the money to invest, they might have pensions that are managed by their companies and they are indirectly through their pension plans and 401ks also financing these types of activities. In terms of what everybody can do to make a difference, you can actually think about where you put your money yourself, but you can also ask the question to your pension plan provider and ask them for sustainable alternatives so that you can have more control of where your money is ultimately going. That was a winded response to what motivates me. As you said, you're motivated because there's so much to learn and there's so many people to help. What motivates you is to continue to educate people on things that they have available to them that they may not even know about. And so that I think makes perfect sense. Let's go on to the next one. Do you think education plays a big role in wealth building? Of course, absolutely. I mean, education is really the key to opening so much opportunity for everyone. But specifically, I think on this issue, education is going to play a really big role in terms of building not just wealth, but sustainable wealth and making that wealth resilient to all these unprecedented global changes and shifts we're seeing these big macro risks, whether it's climate change, whether it's COVID-19, these are all the types of things that require coordination and education into the risks and opportunities. And people need to really kind of inform themselves of what tools are available and at their disposal to protect and continue to create sustainable wealth over the long term. Absolutely. If you could offer a piece of advice, like a parting gift for the listeners, what would that piece of advice be? We've already covered is, please go and ask your pension providers. <laughs> well, that's really more of a call to action than a piece of advice. <laughs> I guess the piece of advice would be to do something that gives you purpose. And that's not easy for everybody to do, I understand. But you can find some mission, some purpose within your daily jobs, your daily lives that gives meaning to your life and meaning to your careers that is more than simply bringing home a paycheck. And maybe it's what that paycheck allows you to do that is what gives you that sense of purpose. But I know for me personally, I don't see this job as just a way to get a paycheck at the end of every month. It really is a way that I feel connected to this broader world and I feel I'm making an impact. And for me, that has been the single biggest driver of my success. And I'm sure if others can find that nugget of purpose in whatever it is they're doing, maybe it's simply you know, bringing smiles to people's faces. That is a reason to really thrive and eventually will be noticed and will make people successful, I'm sure. A wholesome podcast. I feel like very fitting for a family theme <laughs> theme month. Absolutely. We're touching on all parts, but I think this all has to do with your wealth. I think family is a part of your wealth. Health is a part of your wealth, education, finance. So we are touching on all those avenues. As we continue to change this complexion of wealth, where can they follow you on social medias? If you want to give those out, if they want to get more of what the work that you're doing, how can they find you? Well, we already covered my embarrassing Instagram handle, <laughs> the climate warrior. So you can find me on there. Also, I am on Twitter, Mona underscore Nakvi underscore. I actually did have the other Twitter, Mona underscore Nakvi, without the second underscore, but I don't know what happened to it. So, <laughs> I'm not very good with technology. I might need your help with that. But one of those, you'll find me, maybe through LinkedIn as well, all these good places to find me. And if anyone has questions, I do see myself as a resource. My primary purpose there is to educate. So please do ask me questions. and happy to continue the conversation with any of your listeners that care about this topic. Awesome. We will definitely put the link to the show notes in the show for all of your 
social media handles, and then maybe some information about your company. I'll put that in there as well. This has been incredible. Thank you so much for your time. This is well worth the wait. I would have kept waiting because I think you have a valuable and important story to tell. So I can't thank you enough for coming on Money. It's been an honor to have you on. And I hope the listeners really enjoyed this. Thank you. Pleasure is mine. Take care. This is the Minority Money Podcast. I am your host, Emlyn Miles Mattingly. And until next time. Another great showdown, but it doesn't have to stop there. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever podcast app you're listening on now and give it a good rating, would you? If you feel really connected to the podcast, which I hope you do, find our Facebook community, Minority Money VIP, to support and be supported by others just like you. And again, we're glad to have you. While this podcast is meant to inspire and motivate you to live your best life, it can't be your complete one-stop shop. I know, I know, that really sucks. But I don't know anything about your specific situation. So please reach out to an attorney or CPA, or you can reach out to me, a financial planner, to help you with your specific situation. To get a hold of us, please reach us at fan at Minority Money Podcast. That's F-A-N at Minority Money Podcast so we can get to know you there. Thanks for being here and until next time.